We're back with season two of Brand Intentionally Friends, and we got six episodes with six phenomenal entrepreneurs. And we're going to be diving deep into their brands, their mindsets, and what makes them intentionally different. And before we start that off, I want to thank everyone who's shown love for the first season and really made this a reality. Also, a special shout out to my producer, Casanova, who really hooked me up with the intro music for this season. So kick back and get ready to dig deep on this episode of Brand Intentionally with Friends. Now we're kicking it off with a multidisciplinary entrepreneur who's amassed a crazy following, but even more impressively, stayed humble as her business grew. She has fun in her own terms within her business, sharing geeky analogies and cognitive biases that'll give you goosebumps. She's the founder of Customer Camp, the brilliant mind behind the Why We Buy newsletter, and the co-creator of the Unignorable Challenge. She is Caitlin Burgoyne. Hello. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. So how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's a beautiful day here, and... I am uh, working on some new stuff, so I'm feeling in a good mojo. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? So I guess if we want to kind of start at the like more current stuff, I'm a multi kind of like time entrepreneur currently. My focus is on building a small media company with a newsletter called Why We Buy. And then I also have a personal brand cohort-based challenge, which is how you and I actually first got to connect called Unignorable. And so those are kind of the two big parts of my of my business. But essentially, I'm a marketer by trade who's really nerdy about understanding buyers, because if you don't, you can't be a good marketer. And so it's become something I was just always really passionate and nerdy about. And then I've really just built my business around being able to explore that passion. I really love that. Like you make what can traditionally be very boardroom marketing, right? PowerPoints, everything. And you make those and you turn it into fun. And I think that's really what connected me to you because like I've been doing this for a long time too. So I don't really get caught up in like, you know, gimmicks and tactics and all that. And when I finally like found you, I I don't remember, I was on Twitter, obviously. You're the queen of Twitter, right? (laughs) And I saw a tweet from you. It was an analogy. I don't remember specifically which one because immediately after that, I started going through your Twitter and I was just like reading everything. And I'm like, oh, wow, wow, (laughs) wow, wow. This is how I think. This is how I talk. Like in my everyday life, I use analogies for everything, whether it's to describe Mm -hmm. how I feel or to be funny. It's just kind of who I am. And like that really connected with me. And then when I got the email about Unignorable. I was like, you know what? This person got me drawn in that quickly to them. I want to see what it's about. Oh, that's amazing. The rest is history, right? But yeah, so that's really cool. And I think what's really great is that like 120,000 followers on Twitter, right? Just today I made 120,000. Yesterday it was 119,900. I've been creeping up there. So it was nice (laughs) that today we're recording this. That's really awesome, right? And then also 55,000 on Why We Buy, your newsletter. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. which I read every week religiously. It's the only oh. newsletter that I read religiously when I get it. Tuesday mornings so when happy. I get it, I'm like, all right, I need to see the next analogy. I need to see the next thing that's going on. It's my thing. I also saw you tweeted that you made almost half a million dollars for the year so far in revenue. So not quite half a million, but I just checked my banks. I'm actually not that good at keeping track of all this stuff. <laughs> but um, <laughs> as of uh, a couple of days ago, I'm up to like 400 and... Um, 57,000 and I'm waiting on some deposits from sponsors. So by the end of the month, I should have hit my annual goals. My goal for the year was 500, but I think you're going to hit that. (laughs) So I'm pretty excited. And my hope is that now I have to set a bigger goal for next year. So is the business right now largely sponsorship based? Is that how a lot of it comes in? There's really three parts, kind of three spokes, and two of them are much bigger than the third. So the newsletter probably generates around 300,000. Okay. The unignorable is generating about 200, 250. Um, and then I have these on-demand products. One's called my clarity called cheat sheets. And the other mm-hmm. one is the golden nugget review mining system, both of which help you to kind of like understand your customers better through primary research. Those are through customer cam. They are. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And those generate about 100K between the two. So that is kind of the three spokes. I do a few like paid strategy calls, but I don't accept very many. I do a few live workshops for clients that I had from years ago. And that used to be the Mm -hmm. core of my business, but I don't look for new workshop clients. So those are kind of the Uh, main thing. I feel 100% on that. So earlier we were talking before this and I did a lot of web design back in the day. Even from back then, I have a few clients where 
you know, I still help them maintain their websites yeah. and we add like new landing pages and stuff like that. But I don't actively seek that out because that's just not where I'm at anymore. And same with strategy calls. I try to stick more to like the holistic brand approach rather than mm-hmm. just little pieces here or there, because I find like that's what works best. Well, it's so critical to start with that strong foundation too, right? And depending on yeah. where, the, where brands at, I'm sure with your clients, like it's something that I've been talking about a little bit with the newsletter, because the newsletter space, as some of your listeners might know, is really interesting and like hypey right now, but that also means it's become really competitive. And mm. I don't think you can win just on content. Like content is obviously yeah. the most important aspect of having the right content for your readers. But I think that really you need to build a moat. And for a lot of newsletters, that moat is going to be brand. Mm -hmm. But something that we didn't do, like, you know, up until recently, I wasn't invested. I wasn't thinking of the newsletter as much of a business. It was kind of like a channel that we were using to market our own stuff. And then in the last, I'd say, year, I've recognize, you know, this is an actual business and I need to start treating it like one. So it grew into its own like thing. But that's how the best businesses are made, right? Where it's like organically comes like you didn't set out and say, hey, I'm going to try and make a million dollars off of a newsletter. You Mm -hmm. actually were trying to promote other things while still creating an impact. And then it kind of just snowballed into what it is, which is beautiful, I think. Well, I appreciate that. Like, it's funny because like I said that I was working on some new stuff. Like right now I'm working on a new masterclass called unignorable newsletters okay i've been thinking through how it came to be and like you know how can i extrapolate what i've done and share that so other people can create their own unignorable newsletters and it's interesting because like i never started thinking oh i'm going to build a media company i started thinking Mm -hmm. i want to get more clients for my consulting Uh and my workshop but i understood the audience that i was creating for And I understood how to create a piece of content that would be this episodic thing that they wanted to open every week. Oh, we do. Yeah. Well, I appreciate each and every one of you. It's been fun to watch because it's like one of those things where you're really kind of thoughtful about who you're serving and what Mm -hmm. you're trying to accomplish for them, what you're trying to help them get done. And it leads to creating something that's a lot of fun. That's great. I mean, it's important that you have fun with it, right? Mm -hmm. I try to diversify my business. Like I love, you know, doing the whole holistic brand approach and you know we start from the scratch and we do you know a workshop we we create the visuals and if it does lead into you know web design and and content marketing then we get there too but at the same time i can't just do that specifically day in day out otherwise it feels Mm -hmm. like a nine to five Mm -hmm. so like you know i try to do the photography thing too and i try to you know spread my eggs in all the baskets just to not get stale. I love that. I think it's smart too, because at the end of the day, like what you're recognizing is that like, yeah, you're known for the branding side, but you recognize that once you get that put in place for people, they're going to need to kind of pull that thread through the rest of their business, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So actually what's crazy is I've had a local client, soup to nuts, we did everything in the brand, right? From Mm -hmm. the visuals to strategy, website, everything. And even copyright, which we don't usually Mm do. And at one point we need photos for the website and he just wanted stock photos. And I'm like, mm-hmm. this isn't going to go well. Like, I mean, why don't we just hire a local photographer? And he's like, I really don't want to hire somebody else. I don't mm-hmm. have the time to really go to them. I don't trust that they're going to do it. And I'm like, you know what? I'll do it then. You know, I mean, amazing. photography has been a hobby for me. So I have all the equipment and everything, but I usually take like, you know, landscape or I like to go birding, you know, take pictures of birds in the air and everything catch great shots Ooh, really that's a cool hobby you know and as a hobby wise it's been great you know i sell some prints sometimes i i've been in galleries and stuff like that but i've never did it like part of my core business Mm -hmm. so we did this whole branding but then we we did the photo shoot and directed it and they're a valet company so we had the ferraris and the bentleys amazing we took all these pictures and they came out amazing and we're like maybe we should run a side brand photography business now, Mm -hmm. you know, keep it fun and creative and help the local people because like nobody's really doing that well out here. I think there's so many entrepreneurs who are good at the thing that they're good at and, you know, they don't want to learn photography and it doesn't make sense for them to learn photography. You know, entrepreneurs being good at the thing they're good at, right? Like it's like not Mm -hmm. everyone wants to learn how to take good photos and photos are such a critical part of the brand. So for you to put all of this work and effort and thought and creativity into this brand and then have them slap some like stock photos in or Mm -hmm. terrible photos they took themselves. I think that people like they miss the point, like, you know, obviously having your content game is really important, right? You know, you have to have your content pillars, You have to, Mm -hmm. you know, really tap into your audience and know that. But then they throw away the visual side of it. And it's like, oh, okay. It's it's like showing up to a wedding in a tracksuit. Like, 
you spent all this time, you, you got the right mm-hmm. gift, you planned it, you're, you're going in style, you're going in a nice limo, you got the hotel, mm-hmm. but then you, you show up in yep. the track suit and it's like, ooh. Oh, it's a great analogy. See, Garrett, you're the analogy king. It's the analogies that get us. I think for some people, they just don't have the aesthetic eye and don't realize how the signals that they're sending. Um, one of the newsletters mm-hmm. we wrote about in the past was around the halo effect, right? Which is this idea mm-hmm. that we judge people very unfairly in many ways on one characteristic based on other characteristics. So somebody who is tall is more likely to be assumed to potentially be a good leader. Now that being tall mm-hmm. has nothing to do with your leadership skills, yet our brains do this because it's the way that we're wired. Mm-hmm. Design's a big part of that, Right. Yeah. People talk about first impressions. Like when you show up to a job interview, if you look polished and put together, mm-hmm. say you're an accountant, well, are they going to assume that you're going to be more detail focused on the numbers, that your work is going to be more, you know, more intense? And they shouldn't conflate those things, right? Because just because you're dressed really well doesn't mean you're a good accountant. No, not at all. But we do that. We do that because of the halo effect. So design is this lever that a lot of people don't recognize how it Mm -hmm. impacts them. And it is particularly important if the types of people that you sell to care about imagery and status and like, so you think about a valet service, like your example, like their customers care about what they look like. So they don't want to hire. Exactly. It's high end Hamptons valet. So they're mm-hmm. not just that, you know, random backyard barbecues valet. Mm-hmm. They're valeting for celebrities and, mm-hmm. you know, their families. So they have to look tip top shape. Exactly. And I think like going back to what you said about the halo effect, like a lot of people when they start their brand. You know, they miss the design part and mm-hmm. they're trying to sell, you know, three, four or five thousand dollar packages and they look like they have clip art as a logo or mm-hmm. a default Canva template that everybody uses because everybody uses the same template if you come from Canva. Yeah, no, it's very true. And you're like, I mean, the next person has that. Why am I going to give you five thousand dollars? Mm hmm. Yeah. They could be the greatest person in the world to do whatever they do. Yeah. It's appearance, though, unfortunately. Yeah, it's very true. And then it kind of goes to the other extreme where if you're somebody like Paul Graham, for instance, who's like this, you know, famous, famous uh, tech investor, I think, like, you know, creator of YC. I think if you go to his personal website, only somebody with the type of status that he has could get away with this. There's no CSS. It's like white. It's like, it looks Mm -hmm. like it's a website straight from like the early nineties, but also that's kind of telling a story too, right? It's like, I'm so important that I don't even need to think about the aesthetics of my brand Mm -hmm. because people will read my words. And so he's almost kind of created a brand by an anti-brand. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so I think that people just, They don't necessarily always think about how important all these pieces are to tie together and how Mm -hmm. they're going to be perceived. And perception is massive, especially if you're a service that's selling through the internet, which is all of us. Exactly. The way that we perceive that that first impression in the web design world, they'll talk about like, you know, that eight second test, which is like if somebody Mm -hmm. gets to your website in eight seconds, they're forming an opinion. They're deciding. Mm -hmm. Within seven seconds, they have the whole opinion just on your first line, your headline alone. They're out if they don't like it. There was a Microsoft study years ago. I referenced that in one of our workshops from before. And that was absolutely it. Like within that first seven seconds, they're deciding and they'll bounce if if it's not compelling. 100%. So you don't have time to mess around. I mean, or if it, the page even takes too long, right? Mm-hmm. How many websites do you go on? And it's like 20 seconds to load. And it's like, mm-hmm. I come from a web developing background and mm-hmm. I'll be like, nah, I can't do this. My time, my time too much. 20 seconds is nothing, but. In the grand scheme of things, it's everything. It is everything. It's very interesting. But there are rare cases where taking longer can actually be better. One of the things that we talked about in a previous issue of the newsletter was the labor illusion. And so you might have read this mm-hmm. one, but it's very neat. And you've probably seen this. If you go to a travel website, let's say you're looking for the best uh, ticket prices on an airplane, mm-hmm. right? When you go to the travel website, if they instantly load the results, you're not as satisfied as if for a few seconds or like uh-huh. you know, a, a second, you see them kind of like scanning all the different um, flight, all the different airlines and then choosing like you think that more work went into processing mm-hmm. that result and you actually are more satisfied with uh, what's presented to you than if they instantly show you the result. But that is rare. 
It's rare. Most of us want it right away. We don't want to wait. We don't want things loading. But I think transferring that to to like a business perspective also Mm -hmm. is like when I offer packages, right? Mm -hmm. I don't just tell you what it is. I tell you how much hours go into it, even though it's not hourly done, but I give you that approximate thing. So then you know that like, hey, I'm not just opening, you know, Canva or Photoshop, Mm -hmm. opening a template, picking colors and giving them to you. You know that 40 hours of research is going into this project before you get what you want. I love that. That's a great way to use that. And that's a piece that a lot of designers skip. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of great design that doesn't convert because the design team doesn't spend any time trying to understand the audience. It's not just about being pretty. Yeah. Like one of my favorite things that you've went over was the Ikea effect, right? Mm -hmm. Where people, they get like this attachment from being part of the product and building the product and they feel like deeply connected to that. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Like what's one of your other favorite? My favorite, there's two that are my favorite of okay. all time. For anybody who's listening, who's not familiar with why we buy and kind of like what we do, we share what are like buyer psychology concepts. And in the behavioral science world, a lot of what we share are considered to be cognitive biases or heuristics. And a cognitive bias is basically like a little shortcut that your brain will take. Like, why would you value something more if you had a hand in making it the Ikea effect? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense. So there's a bit of a bias there. It's kind of considered to be an error in thinking sometimes. There's a number of these. There's a lot of behavioral scientists sharing different work and some of them kind of overlap and it can be a bit confusing. There are two that stand out for me. One is this concept called the pratfall effect. So we Mm -hmm. actually like things more when they are imperfect or flawed in a way. So the great example of this is they did this study and they had job applicants go into an interview and they looked, you know, they looked all dressed up. They looked, you know, professional. But in the interview, they were giving great answers, very competent. They clearly weren't a, a, you know, a dunce. But in the interview, some of them would by mistake spill coffee on themselves. So like, you know, an error any of us could make, you're going to grab something, your finger falls. Um, And afterwards, they had the interviewers rate them on how much they liked them. And the ones who made that little mistake were actually considered to be more likable than the ones who didn't spell coffee on themselves. They're not so perfect. Yeah, exactly. It's counterintuitive, right? But I think at the end of the day, we recognize as humans that we're all, you know, flawed in small ways. None of like, you know, if it depends what you think of as the ideal, but I think we find things that have imperfections to be more relatable because we're all imperfect. I think that's why like people like when in this era, people are like really real about things. They show their behind the scenes day-to-day life. And, you know, I, I battle with mental health sometimes like a lot of entrepreneurs do. And when I share something like that, hey, I'm not posting this week because... I need a break or Mm -hmm. I'm taking a little summer sabbatical. I know that type of stuff resonates with people so much. And I get messages from people who want to see how I'm doing. And then Mm -hmm. down the line, like that forges our relationship closer because they see that I'm not just, you know, I might have the perfect setup. I might look great on video, Mm -hmm. have great content. But the fact that they see that there's a human behind it. Critical, right? I think that kind of ties into that. There's a great book that um, we just did a kind of like mini email challenge on. And it's called Persuasion. And it's written by Robert Caldini, who's the author of Influence, which is one of kind of the most read books on uh, behavioral science and like um, psychology and how to be more influential. But this is one of his other books. And he talks about what it takes to be likable, right? Because like a lot goes into persuasion, like aside from what you actually say, like what you say Mm -hmm. is persuasive, but everything happens. And what you say before you actually try to make a pitch and like get somebody to buy, that's also incredibly persuasive. And one of the big factors that like makes somebody more persuasive is that they're likable. And guess what goes into making somebody likable? We like people who are more like us. (laughs) Is that a shocker to any of us? No, it's, it's Nate, it's human nature, right? Like we grew up in like our ancestors, like evolved in tribes and you had to decide who you were going to trust and you needed to lean on each other for survival. And Mm -hmm. therefore the people who you perceive to be more like you, they seem more trustworthy. And so we like people more when they're like us and we are imperfect. (laughs) We are flawed. You know, I also battle with mental health issues. And so for me, when I see somebody who seems to have all their shit together, never shows any weaknesses, never acknowledges to any challenges, they're just always winning. That's not something I can relate to, 
right? It's not yeah. relatable. No, I agree. There's lots of times I'm not winning. <laughs> and so I think that it's important. That's why I love the pratfall effect. That was one that really stood out for me. True for like typos, right? Like we're all perfectionists. Mm-hmm. Like you might send an email with a typo and you're going to go, oh my God, I can't believe it. Everyone's going to think I'm an idiot. And in reality, yeah, they like you more because they probably sent an email out with a typo too. <laughs> yeah. They're probably like, oh, it happened to me too. Don't worry about yeah. it. Like I get anxiety when people are too perfect, if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons like I have this love-hate relationship with Instagram. Mm-hmm. Me too. I go on and you know, there's a lot of great content, a lot of great creators, a lot of great friends I've met through there. But like when you go like on the Explore page or even your feed now because the algorithm, right? You get like all these people who are pretending to be so perfect in every aspect of their life. And then I think about myself, I'm like, oh, I don't got my shit together like this. Mm-hmm. I thought I had my shit together, but I don't have my shit together. And then I get anxiety and then I have to like close out the app and I'm done with social for the day. I have to be done or mm-hmm. that's it. I personally, I'm, I, you know, I apologize to any listeners who love Instagram. It is my least favorite place to hang out on the internet. <laughs> I just find it's like, it's designed to make you compare yourselves to other people. No, I, I completely agree. And it, the other thing that it does is something that I haven't written about yet, but I'm going to. There's this terrific book everybody should read. It's called Wanting by Luke Burgess. And what he gets into is this concept that was new to me, but makes total sense when you hear it. And it's called mimetic desire. So oftentimes people, we don't really know what we want. And so we decide what we want by mirroring and mimicking what it looks like other people want. And I think that Instagram is a massive amplifier of that. If you look at design trends, right? Like how does it happen that like, you know, 15 years ago, everybody's kitchen looked like this and then slowly, Uh slowly, slowly. Now everyone's kitchen's white. Does everybody love white kitchens? Not necessarily, but there's a mimetic desire, right? Like we see the white Mm -hmm. kitchen, we go, oh, They all seem to love that white kitchen. Maybe I should have a white kitchen. Like the white picket fence, like dream. A hundred percent, right? And so the interesting thing about medic desire is that if you're not careful, you can end up pursuing things that you think you want and then get them and realize they don't make you happy. And for me, Uh, there was kind of this aha moment that's happened to me in the last year where I had been under the belief that after having had a branding agency years ago and having a fairly large team, then having a tech company and having a fairly large team that I did not want to have a team again. I want to just do a business where I could be a solopreneur. Maybe I work with a couple of like, you know, amazing contractors or freelancers, but I did not want to hire any employees. I thought that that's what I wanted. And it also coincided with the kind of like uh, the growth in popularity of my friend, Justin Welsh, who's a big mm-hmm. proponent of this idea of solopreneurship. And so I'm looking at what Justin's talking about. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's what I want. That's what I want. Like, I don't want employees again. I want, I want this. And then when I partnered up with um, the demand curve team to create unignorable, there was like, this aha moment for me. I was like, no, wait, I don't want to be a solopreneur. Like I love having a team. I just want partners and not Uh, employees. You know, I want to work with partners instead of employees. And that's what I actually want. And so I realized, I kind of like reflected and I was like, I bought into this whole thing, even though in all the years of being an entrepreneur, I've been an entrepreneur for almost like, well, 13 years now. Like in all those years, I remember looking at friends of mine who had awesome co-founders. They had this really great partnership. And kind of like envying that because like I'd been a like a solo founder in most of my ventures and envying that. And then once it was funny because I reflected back and I was like, actually, like I've always wanted a partner, but I talked myself into the solopreneur dream because I'd seen Mm -hmm. so many other people talking about it. I'd seen so many other people saying that that's what they wanted. And I think that Instagram really amplifies that mimetic desire you see Mm -hmm. everyone has a small dog now i must want a small dog right like everyone's got the same haircut i probably want that haircut and the reality is you need to stop yourself and you really need to root in and ask yourself deeper questions because oftentimes the path to get to what you want is not the path that you think it is if you're not really asking yourself those those deeper questions yeah i i love that and i had no idea like that was like a whole theory but thinking about that as you're talking that sounds like it's the root of like imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. and it's like oh well this person 
you know, so like, and then we get there and like you said, and then we're burnt out because we, we did all this shit to get to this one spot and realize we don't even want it. Happens all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. I was watching, um, it's a Netflix series. I think it's called untold. And it's like untold stories, different folks. And there's one on what's his name? Uh, Logan Paul's younger brother. He's like an amazing Jake Paul, Jake Paul. Yeah. He was sharing his story. And like for most people, like, you know, a lot of people, especially when he was coming up on YouTube, like they, they dream about the life that he was able to create. Mm-hmm. And he, as a YouTuber, was ridiculously unhappy. He didn't like himself. You know, you get to the very top of this thing and you keep chasing and chasing, you know, him and his, he said like him and his brother were competing on views and they were competing on mm-hmm. who got the best sponsors and who made the most money. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it all felt really hollow and not, and it didn't drive a lot of happiness. And I think that this is, so one of the things that Luke um, Burgess talks about in his book is ways to find what he calls your thick desires. And your thick desires for you are the things that you actually want, the things that actually make you happy. And Mm. for me, one thing that is that like, you know, I really desire to feel supported and understood. And I really value getting to collaborate and brainstorm and create. And I don't like doing it alone. And yet I had convinced myself that this was the story of what I wanted. And this was the company I was going to build. And here were all the reasons Mm -hmm. why without really digging into the surface and looking at what I really wanted. So mimetic desire, interesting, interesting concept. Great. You know, wanting is a very good book worth reading. I mean, I think I'm going to have to order that as soon as we're done now. It's super good. So like, aside from like, obviously partnering now with other companies, is there like certain changes that this has led you to go down for your business? Yeah, for me, what it looks at is like, so with Why We Buy, that's just for me. I've had like, I've had an amazing contact writer who's worked with me for a long time on it. Eva, correct? Yes, Eva. Yeah, amazing. Um, I have an incredible VA who does a lot of the behind the scenes work on stuff. Um, and I mm-hmm. just brought on another really great VA who's helping me. But I'm now looking for a partner for Why We Buy, like somebody to come in and kind of like more operational, like head of content role, and mm-hmm. I don't think I would have had that awareness that that's what I wanted unless I would have had the opportunity to build unignorable with the demand curve team, because I was still very much on this path of like, you know, like solo partnership is what I want. So it is affecting me in that way. And what I'm recognizing about myself is that I don't want to build why we buy as this kind of like one person media brand. Like I want to, mm-hmm. I want to have a partner in it. I want us to build this little kind of like mini empire together. And I think that that's going to make me a lot happier in the long run. So I've got this great partnership with um, Neo and the Demand Curve team. And now mm-hmm. I have um, a person in mind that we're kind of like in early discussions for who what that will look like on the why we buy side. That's awesome. So like I said before, you're killing it between Twitter, the newsletter. The content is always like the highest quality, but yet it's also super consistent. How are you able to keep it that high of quality while still being that much as a solopreneur you know what Mm -hmm. i mean well there's kind of like three spokes there so the newsletter i like you know eva has been hugely valuable on the newsletter she's been working with me for almost over a year we're actually gonna be parting ways and i'm as i'm looking at this next um as i'm chatting with somebody about coming on as a partner but she's Mm -hmm. been working on it for a long time And so we had a very clear and working format and structure when she came on. We knew exactly what every issue looked like. We'd been doing it for two years already. So we had really clear guidelines of this Mm -hmm. is what goes into each issue. Here's the length that we want each each section to be. Here's the type of examples that we want to give. And so having that format is a huge time saver. And one of the things I'm working on, like, you know, I'm going to be explaining in the new masterclass on, on newsletters is if you look at your favorite newsletters, they all use a format for sometimes it's very obvious. Sometimes it's less obvious. Yeah. hundred percent. Like James clear, his three, two, one newsletter, same format every time. I think it's like three tweets, two ideas, one. And one thing I really like or something yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. Always the same though. Right. So all he needs to do when he sits down to read his newsletter, James is genius. But all he needs to do is basically look at his last week on Twitter and go, what were my top three tweets? Okay, uh, <laughs> those are the ones I'm going to put in. <laughs> and, you know, what are two ideas that I found interesting this week? I'm sure he's just got this running list. And, you know, what's something that I that I think my readers would enjoy? 
And so he all, he sits down to write and there's not a blank page. There's a canvas with the paint the numbers, right? So instead of starting from scratch, you're starting from a jump point. Exactly. I feel like that's like people need to create when it comes to content, you'll start to develop these kind of like formats and like content shells over time that you use again and again. So with our newsletter, mm. we have a very specific one. I'd say that we got lucky. And not that we got lucky. Um, my friend Stu and I, we, we worked on the original newsletter together. It, you know, it hasn't evolved much from the original. It's there's some things that we've changed. But really, we had such clarity around what that first version was going to be that mm. we put it out and it worked. And that's not that's not that's rare that doesn't happen very often yeah. but that also probably comes from your background of like the other side of the business like knowing your audience deeply i would i would argue that's a competitive advantage that i have and it's <laughs> one that i continue to invest in like it's so important uh, and then when it, on the social side of things there's a few kind of like content templates and formats that i always return to so when we go mm -hmm. to plug our newsletter i'll usually plug it the day before it's going to go out and the day of I always start it with like the same, the same format. It's again, like just mm -hmm. fill in the blanks. I've got this format where I share like a geeky brain tip, which is around mm -hmm. understanding like some little nugget of fire science. And I, I can go to that format and use it again and again. I scour Twitter to look for these really cool visual tweets. Sometimes you'll see just like amazing things that people make out of text like it'll look like this like person holding a globe in their hand and it's uh -huh. made out of dashes and dots <laughs> like i'll find those and i'll save them and i'll use those so like i think when it comes to the content side of things it's really a, it's a lot of experimentation understanding your audience understanding what people pay attention to which is what we really focus mm -hmm. on in the unignorable challenge and then playing right? Finding your voice, finding what your content resonates with, putting out more and more content and seeing what's getting traction. Yeah. The thing that I say oftentimes about building an audience is that clarity will come from engagement, not thought. Like so mm. many people spend all their time thinking about like, well, what should my niche be? And you know, what should like really obsessing about like all of the kind of like strategic stuff. And you need to think about that. But at the end of the day, you don't decide the audience decides right definitely like you get to guide it you can think of it like a ship right you can change this direction of the sail if you want to go this way but if your audience isn't interested in that and it's like they're blowing a, yeah. a gale in front of you you're not going to go very far so you need to think about where you want things to go and then also recognize that you need to listen to the feedback of the audience because they're going to help you evolve. Yeah. When I started on Twitter, I was very focused on talking about customer discovery, which is a concept from the, you know, startup world, and mm -hmm. most of the people that I was talking to were working in high growth like startups, primarily SaaS companies. That's where I started. And I was like that's who I'm going to talk to. And that was because it was strategic based on the type of business I was trying to build at the time. But over time, as I learned more about what I got excited about writing about, and as I listened to the audience and what they were resonating with, it began shifting. And I started focusing on marketing and then more mm -hmm. understanding customers, not just customer discovery, which is as part of the product development process. And then I started pushing more towards the buyer psychology. So it was this slow evolution again, like, you know, you're tilting the sails and going in a direction. So it's like you put those hours in before it became an overnight success. It wasn't oh, yeah. just like, boom, I woke up and I have 120,000 followers <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah, that's not that is not what happened. Yeah, it's it's it was a progression. And it's almost always that way for everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, many of my friends who have built successful businesses off the backs of kind of an audience, most of them, there was no overnight success. And most of them, if you were to look at where they started and what they're doing today and ask them to kind of go back through their journey, you're going to see a big evolution in focus and message. And But that's part of the journey because you need to find what resonates with people. I agree. I found that in my own journey because like almost everybody that does branding, right? They start at the same point of like trying to go over the foundation, who, what, why. 
or they go to archetypes, right? Mm -hmm. I fucking hate archetypes. It's trying to put a business and your community into a box. Mm -hmm. And I don't agree with it. That's why I came up with the whole intentional branding side of like, Mm. focus on the value, focus on the why, focus on why you're doing this beyond the money because everybody wants money. We all need money. Mm -hmm. We can't survive without it. Mm -hmm. So that's like where I came with that formula to go back to that. I'm not used to building a business on social. I built my business before social existed. And the thing about being a, you know, being great at what you do is that I had a branding agency myself years ago. I never had any social presence and I didn't need one because most of my work came in through referrals, right? Exactly. There's nothing wrong with prioritizing client work over building your audience in the short term. But you're wise to recognize the opportunity it presents for your long term. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm at that point in my career where like you, like, you know, how you discovered you wanted a partner and, you know, you're doing Mm -hmm. that. So I'm at that point where I discovered I still love this. I'm still going to keep doing this, but I want to grow to a point where kind of like Alex Ramone or Gary Vee, where Mm -hmm. they create content to help people and they release things to help people and they do it for nothing because they want to do it. Like they don't have to do Mm -hmm. it. And they work with bigger partners and they work, you know, their business is a whole nother thing than what you see on social media. Yeah. And that's kind of the point where I can also then turn around and focus on creating content, whether it's on YouTube or Instagram Mm -hmm. or podcasts like this, where I can actually reach those people who can't afford yet to work with me. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the money for me. That's just what, what the industry has become, right? Mm-hmm. And I still want to help those people who are still trying to figure it out. And I don't want to be on calls all day either. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like I'm getting to that impasse where, you know, my big thing is, is I don't care about my follower account, right? I mean, I think it's great when you build it in a mass, but it's not a it's not a critical like metric for so many people. And we talk about yeah. this a lot and unignorable. Like, you know, if you focus on the wrong things you end up with mm-hmm. you know attention is fine but you what you really want to do is build intent with the right audience exactly that should be the goal of anybody who's trying when it comes to personal branding building an audience it's about creating intention with the people who are the best fit customers for you and that's really what matters yeah exactly like i don't care about my follower account right like earlier on in twitter you know i had 5000 followers like right out the bat kind of and that's cool but it did nothing for my business. Like mm-hmm. you said, like a branding agency, like you have your business. I do a great job at one client and I got four or more out the door. You know what I mean? I don't even need to do a launch mm-hmm. to get things like I've done it for, you know, just for the sake of doing it. But like, I don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's not about that for me. It's more so that now I need this follower account that I don't really care about the number. But to get to that next level, I kind of need that number for mm-hmm. the larger clientele to see that. And then let me help other people. It helps with authority. Absolutely. Authority matters, right? Like we jump to conclusions far too quickly. Yeah. Just because somebody has a large audience on social media does not mean that they are proficient at what they do or that they are giving good advice. It doesn't go to you because, you know, you have you have the large following and you have a successful business. But most of the people that I do end up working with now, they have Mm -hmm. 150,000 followers. And they have zero in sales. This is the secret that nobody really talks about. It's getting discussed a bit more now. We, you know, we talked about it a lot as we were building on Ignorable because I was seeing this trend, particularly on Twitter, which is where I'm most active. I'm building an audience on LinkedIn too. But um, I recommend to everyone who's listening, like focus on one channel in the beginning because it's way too much work to try to do too. Yeah, of course. But, you know, it took me years to build up my Twitter audience. Now I can do LinkedIn for you. Start with one. (laughs) But a number of folks who have very large audiences on Twitter do not have much money coming into Mm -hmm. from their audience because they focused more on the size of the audience and therefore put out a lot of what we would call like, you know, top of funnel, generic, you know, content that was interesting, but interesting to a large swath of people. And they never really position themselves as an expert in the things that mattered to the audience that they wanted to sell to. And so they ended up with this massive audience and no real idea around how to convert that into sustainable income. Exactly. And that's a mistake. And that's one of the things that we want to help people to avoid (laughs) at Unignorable. We talk a lot about attention is not intent. Exactly. Meanwhile, I'm over here. If we're talking about Instagram, I have a thousand followers and yet 
I'm killing it. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm booked out all year. Mm-hmm. It's like that necessary evil that I have to kind of grow into. And that, that's kind of where I'm at in my own journey. I like where you're, where you are with how you're thinking about it though, because I think that you obviously understand the number doesn't matter from the dollars in your bank account perspective. No. The number matters as a kind of like reference check, depending on what it is you're doing. Right. Like Mm -hmm. if I were trying to create a program around building an audience and I had 10 followers, it would be a real problem. Mm -hmm. Right. If you're trying to sell a fitness like program and you are in terrible shape, right? That's a problem. (laughs) Like, so you have to think about what does the projection that you're giving through your kind of like social content actually represent what makes sense for your business. It's the ultimate vibe check. Totally, totally. And so for some people, depending on where they're going with things, it's more important than it is for others. There are plenty of millionaires and multimillionaires who still have an egg picture on Twitter. (laughs) They've never made any... And nobody knows their name at all. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of a great dream too. Because like, as much as it's great having an audience, it'd be really nice not to need an audience and (laughs) to still have a message. (laughs) business. So going back though, your second favorite principle. Yes. So my second favorite principle, I would say is it's not so much of a, I wouldn't say that it's a um, cognitive bias. It's more of a concept, um, but it's really relevant to a lot of what we've been talking about. It's called Solomon's paradox. Mm -hmm. As a person who works with clients and does branding work, have you ever felt like you get annoyed when it's like, I can look at that client and I can learn about their customers and I can so clearly see the vision for what I'm going to create for them. And then you sit down to do your own stuff and you're like, ah, 100%. That is Solomon's paradox. So it's based on King Solomon, who's this famous ruler. And he was apparently considered to be the wisest man in the realm, right? Mm. The wisest man in the kingdom. People will go to him with their problems and he could immediately figure out the best solution. And yet in his own life, he would toil over what seemed to others to be kind of like simple, simple decisions. And we all do Mm -hmm. that. And so Solomon's paradox was this really freeing concept for me to learn about. Because as a, you know, consultant for many years and an agency owner, there's a shame that comes along with feeling like you're not doing for yourself what you're telling your clients to do or what you can do so easily for others. And I recognizing that it was very like it was like a relief because it was like oh this isn't just i'm an imposter i'm actually not as good at this thing as i think i am or like you know that i can't even do this for myself so how good could i be this is a thing this is a like you know it's a challenge that a lot of it's a block for a lot of people and so i'd say that that's the concept that i really love and when we wrote our newsletter on solomon's paradox that was the one that of all the issues we've sent got the most replies. So I think people just were able to breathe out and go, oh, I'm not alone. Like, thank God, it's not just me. Yeah. Why is it that I can write incredible copy for my clients mm-hmm. and I look at my landing page and my headline and I hate it? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And it's because it's much easier. My friend Louis Grania has this great saying. I, it's not his saying. I first heard him say it. It's this idea that you can't read the label from inside the bottle. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's, yes. that's great. That's it. right? Yeah. Yeah. Fun fact that it actually took me like a year to get mm-hmm. my own, you know, obviously by hand logo. And it took me a year to really figure out the exact type. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I have a book, book filled of each letter just mm-hmm. to get the right type that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, like, meanwhile, like, you know, somebody will contact me tomorrow and I have 10 ideas already ready to go that move with their audience and everything. Because that's, you know, mm-hmm. part of what we do. An important reminder for people that this is why you hire outside of your of your company, right? Yeah. Even Neil and I, like we help each other to like, you know, build their personal brand to figure out how to position themselves and brand themselves. And mm-hmm. after our first cohort of Unignorable, Neil said, he's like, you know, he's like, I feel kind of like shitty. He's like, we're helping people figure out their LinkedIn bios. And he's like, I don't feel like mine's very good. And I was mm-hmm. like, it's because of Solomon's paradox. So like we jumped on a call together and we like workshopped it together. And then he walked away with something he felt a lot better with. But I, I needed the same thing from him, right? Like, I think that we oftentimes were ashamed to ask for help in areas where we feel like we should be experts. And you can't do your own stuff the same way that you can help others. I feel like that's why so many people don't invest in coaching or, or learning. Mm-hmm. Last year, I hired a brand coach. And I felt a little bit shamed because like, I'm mm-hmm. like, 
I'm a branding expert. I just hired a brand coach. Solomon's paradox is your, it's your redemption, right? Yeah. And then, but I saw like where he was at, right? And I'm like, that's where I want to get to. Tell me what your experience. Do you feel like at the end of the day, he was able to get you to a place you couldn't get to on your own? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I really honed in my, you know, whole intentional message a lot more. Mm -hmm. It's just been an eye-opening experience completely. I think that's another thing around our own limiting beliefs. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're talking about it, like, you know, behavioral science stuff that I find delightful. Another one is the Galatia effect, or it's sometimes called the Pygmalion effect, which is this idea that if whether we believe we can do something or we believe we can't do something, we're right, right? Like we set these beliefs out. And if we don't believe in ourselves, we might see that there's a, you know, a solution that would be perfect to help us overcome our problem. Let's say that somebody joins Unignorable, or they want to join Unignorable, and everything about it sounds great. But if they don't believe in themselves, they're not going to join because they they have this limited belief. It's like, you know, they might be able to teach other people how to do this, but I'm not going to be good, right? I'm going to struggle. Self-fulfilling prophecies. Exactly. And so I think that it's often really important for us to identify those limiting beliefs. Yeah. Alex Ramosi, he said this thing that was really poignant, as he always does. He's very, he's very um, direct and like poignant in the word the words that he uses and he said something around solve rich people problems because the reality is the difference between the output is probably not different right like Mm -hmm. if you're designing a logo for puma versus designing a logo for like you know the shoe store down the street like your process might not look that much different Mm -hmm. what will look very different is your invoice (laughs) (laughs) you can charge puma a whole lot more but to get to the stage where Puma's hiring you, that personal brand is a, is a massive catalyst. It's a massive part of it. 100%. Yeah. One of my favorite psychological theories when it comes to design is something that you wrote about, not recently, but you wrote about a few months ago called Hicks Law. Yes. Yeah. I call that the Netflix effect. Mm-hmm. Picture, you know, me and my wife, we had a long day. We want to watch a new show. We sit down, we turn on Netflix and we browse and we browse. Next thing you know, 30 minutes pass by. We're both overwhelmed and we're like, fuck it. Let's just watch Disney Plus then. Mm -hmm. And we turn it off and we go and never come back to Netflix again until there's something we specifically know we want. And it happens every single time. Amazing. When it comes to design, so many people, they want to shove 10 things in one frame, you know, in your Mm -hmm. viewport on your website alone, like they have like six buttons, you know, it's just too much and it's overwhelming. And I think that's like one of the things that I always have to go back to and, and keep workshopping through people with that Mm -hmm. so like be really intentional about what your action is that you want people to take it's a great point because i think that oftentimes we are afraid that if we don't share all the things Mm -hmm. we're gonna miss out and that comes out of loss aversion right like we don't want to miss out on opportunities and we don't want to lose the opportunities and the reality is you there's a lot more to gain from being you know simplifying the customer experience simplifying the ass and it's something that i think every business it's a work in progress yeah of course even as i think about unignorable like in the space of like content like online courses and trainings for many many years like a big like selling point that people would put on their websites was like 70 hours of training content and for me i would always see that my eyes would blaze over and i'd be like That's a nightmare. Yeah, I'd be like, no, please not. Like, why do you think that that's a selling point? Like, for me, how do you get somebody the outcome that they want in the shortest amount of time possible Mm. with the least amount of effort? And so even like even as we look at like, you know, next cohort and how things are changing for me, it's always about trimming away. What can you mm-hmm. get rid of? Like, like you've probably heard this design saying, you know, like it's not done when there's nothing left to add. It's done when there's nothing left to take away. Yeah. The white space is essential to let things breathe and let people mm-hmm. breathe, in, you know, design aspect wise. Well, which is why I mean, people love Apple stuff, right? People love Volkswagen yeah. stuff, all of that classic design. It was, they were so good at using the negative space that what they did show made such a big impact. I think that's what it goes down to. Like if you, if you have one thing that you deliver and you deliver it so exceptionally well, they're going to want to go into everything. It's an important message for people because like the other thing that people do when it comes to selling their products is that like, this is very common where you just want to show everything, everything you've got, right? Because I want to sell something. So I'm going to show them all the things. But oftentimes you probably have that one thing that is going to be relevant and exciting to the majority 
of customers. If you can get them to kind of commit to that thing, then down the road, you can introduce them to these other things that you might have, right? And people mm-hmm. are afraid to do that. They'd much rather show that they've got like, you know, 90 different options. Mm-hmm. All, all the eggs in every basket. Mm-hmm. Going back to like our whole analogy thing, right? Because that's where we really connect. Where did it come from that you got into that whole geeky side of it? On the buyer psychology side of things, and like what made me geek out on that, the first introduction to it, I'd say, was um, a book by Jonah Berger. And it's called Contagious. Contagious. Yes. Great book. Yeah. I'm reading his new book called Magic Words, which is also very, very good. Um, but I read Contagious when it first came out. I think it was back in like 2016 or 2006. I can't mm-hmm. remember. It was like I was in early, probably 2000. Oh, it was 2013, I think. But I had just started, you know, I just started my first marketing business. I didn't study marketing. I didn't have a background in it. I had a background in PR, uh, but marketing mm-hmm. was what I was gravitated towards. And I discovered that it broke down like why people share things, why things go viral. And for me, it was like the floodgates open. And I was like, oh my God, there's this entire world of understanding people that is Mm -hmm. so much more important than the stuff I was paying attention to, right? Like I was like, you know, I was trying to like make myself feel like a marketer and I was so looking up like all the best ads of all time and like, I was trying, like, I was all about, like, creating, like, really sexy, like, you know, content and, like, uh-huh. really sexy brands. It's part of the trap. Yeah, it's a total, it was, and it was a total trap. This whole idea that, like, really what matters is understanding, like, you know, if I found, if I loved the, you know, the Volkswagen aesthetic, dig down and understand, like, what about that is compelling to someone mm. like me? And what are they doing and how are they doing it? And so that was really my first kind of foray, I guess, into the geeky side of understanding human behavior. Yeah. I, you know, continued to read books on like, you know, psychology, like I, but I didn't really geek out on it until I decided to start the newsletter. I say this all the time. Like I wasn't an expert on this stuff at all. I was just somebody who was Mm -hmm. interested. I was just interested in it. And I understood what I was doing with my um, consultancy and my workshops. It was all around helping people to understand their customers. And so I didn't want to create a newsletter on doing research because that would be boring as hell for people. Yeah, definitely. And that's what we did at our agency because that's super important. (laughs) But I knew people didn't want to open that newsletter every week. And so I was like, how, what are other ways that people can better understand customers? Like we help them through primary research, but the type of people we want to attract, they're probably people who want to understand their customers. They're probably looking for, you know, other solutions. So like, what if you thought about like, how can you understand people more broadly? Ah, behavioral science. So it really Mm. was back in 2012 that I first got interested, but it wasn't until 2020, eight years later, that I actually was like, I want to start learning more about this and like start sharing what I'm learning through the newsletter. And it just took off. So then how did the like the storytelling and the analogy part come to like, is that just like who you are? Or is that just like kind of something you reverse engineered? through like all your marketing days? I think that if you want somebody to remember something, it's always better when it's wrapped in a story, right? Like we don't remember facts. We remember narratives. I agree. And so that's something I learned about through psychology. And Mm -hmm. so studying this stuff, it was like, if I want to share something with people and have them understand it, then I need to explain it to them in a way that's visceral and clear. And I'm all about examples too, right? And all of the content that I create, like, People, you can tell somebody all the stuff we've been talking about. We've been talking about like Hicks Law and but what you said about the Netflix effect, like people that immediately go, oh, I get it. I get it. Right. Yeah, like, exactly. And that's it. You want to take people as quickly as possible from a you should care about this and then make them go, oh, I get why I should care about this. And the fastest way to do that is through an analogy. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think for me, where it comes from is like, you know, we talked about this earlier. You know, I had another season in my life where I was really into music. I was in the music scene. I was an audio engineer. I wrote music. I produced music, everything. And I know you're a hip hop fan. I saw you on uh, Twitter, you bought your son the ABCs of rap. It's crazy how fast he learned all that. What I like, though, is a twist that we haven't mentioned is in a lot of your content, you sometimes put like lyrics to songs and like you twist it towards your message. And I love that. <laughs> um, I mean, that's probably just a hip hop fan type thing, but I love that. But in hip hop, right, being a fan, you know that it's about making people experience things that they might not have been able to live through themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And if I just tell you, hey, I had to sell this to make it alive, 
that doesn't work as much as if I do a metaphor and make you feel like, hey, you ever been hungry and not feeling this? And you know what I mean? Like, so if you put things together like that, it kind of goes. And from a very early age, I, you know, I was always listening to hip hop music and that was just my thing. And I think like when I transitioned into that myself and I went to a writing perspective, you kind of like get used to just speaking in metaphors and similes. Mm-hmm. And I think like it's just being able to to be myself and add that hip hop background into it without having to make music. Yeah, I love that. I think that people want to see the whole person, right? Mm-hmm. And we're, again, we're going to gravitate towards people who share our vibe. You know, your vibe mm-hmm. like dictates your tribe. And it's just the way it works. And so when you try to put yourself into, when you do what you think you're supposed to do, right? And it's not really authentic to you. It's not going to be very much fun. And you're not going to attract the right people. And it's going to feel like work. And, you know, we all work hard enough in our day-to-day life. We don't want to have to (laughs) work hard on our work. Yeah. So you know that my whole thing is about being intentional, intentionality. And through your journey, you know, there's been startups, there's been branding agencies. Where in it for you was the one intentional shift that changed everything? That's an excellent question. I would say that the intentional shift started when I started my, like, you know, my my current company looks different than it did in the beginning. You know, I never started the newsletter with the intention of growing into what it was. Like, unignorable was a surprise that happened last year. But when I started mm-hmm. customer camp and I started working on the type of work I'm doing now, I looked at somebody who at the time was just like, you know, I considered to be like a guru. And now I've been blessed enough to get to actually spend time with that person. Like, you know, we were mm-hmm. at a trip in Italy together and I'm just, they're just as smart as you think they would be. It's April Dunford. April Dunford is an amazing mm-hmm. expert on positioning. Mm-hmm. And I looked at what April had done with her business. She's a marketer. And I remember seeing her speak. She'd come to speak in, in Halifax at an event I was at. And I was just blown away by her. She was so brilliant. But the thing that I thought was absolutely brilliant was that as a marketer, I always felt this tension of chasing trends, right? It's like, okay, what's the new channel? Like, what's the new tactic? What's working now? And Mm -hmm. what I thought April did that was so genius was positioning as this foundational thing that always matters in marketing. And it doesn't matter whether you are talking about, you know, evolutions in AI or new channels or new trends or whatever, like, Positioning is always going to be important. It's always going to be central to effective marketing. And how to do it well is this like forever thing. So I started thinking about as I was trying to decide what I was going to do as a business, because I had closed down my tech company. I previously had a branding agency. I knew I wanted to do training or do something more scalable than kind of like just a service-based business, but I didn't know what I wanted to focus on. And I started off and I was doing all this content on like building funnels and stuff and funnels were kind of like trendy at the time. And, mm-hmm. but I had no heart in it and I wasn't excited about it. And then I saw what April was doing and it pulled me back. And I said, instead of looking at trends and what's changing and feeling like I'm always feeling behind, what if I focused on what doesn't change? And that's people, right? Understanding your customer is always going to be central to the success of a business. A business and more specifically, you know, to marketing. And so that was, I'd say, the intentional choice I made when I started the, my path that I'm on now, which was I'm going to focus on what doesn't change and I'm going to focus on understanding customers because there's many mm. different ways you can do that. There's many different paths to get to that outcome. But foundationally, it's the most critical thing. And there's a lot I can do with that concept. And I'd say that that was the thing that I wish I would have done in other businesses. (laughs) I wish I would have been more (laughs) thoughtful, but I think you have to make a lot of mistakes to to learn from them. Without a doubt. But that, I'd say, would be an intentional thing. Thank you so much, Kate. I've had a blast. Me too, Garrett. This has been so much fun. Where can people find you and learn how to work with you? So the best way to find me is on Twitter. um, And I'm at Kate Bohr. So K-A-T-E-B-O-U-R. And that's where I spend a lot of time. So like come there, strike up a conversation. You can find a link to like whatever projects are kind of like my priorities at the time through there. Um, And that's the best way to get in touch. And I want to also say that even though you have amassed this amazing following, that you're still personal enough that you do actually reach out to everybody. 
or mostly everybody who's not just, you know, pitching you, you interact with people and you talk to them and you show them things and learn from them and everything else. And I think that's really great. And it's, it's also really important to keep like that bit of humility in you, no matter how big you get. It's, it's fun. I get to meet so many cool people. Like I've like, I, there's nothing that has made my, you know, that's built my business and also helped me as much as, as getting to connect with amazing people through Twitter and selfishly, it's also great for understanding your customers better, right? If you're just yeah. posting and leaving, look at all of what you're mm -hmm. missing in terms of insights. So it's also, you know, if you want to justify spending time chatting with random people on the internet, just tell yourself you're doing customer research. I think that's a little hidden nugget for people that they weren't expecting at the end. <laughs> for sure. Whoa, there are so many different nuggets in this episode that can give your business a psychological advantage. But do remember to use them ethically. And a huge thank you to Caitlin for being my guest on this episode. Make sure you check her newsletter. It is a must read. Also, don't forget to go to garrett.tv so you can subscribe and get the latest episodes. And remember, brand intention.